I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. This episode is brought to you by Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network, where the Andrews family brings the great ideas of Western literature to bear on the life, art, and culture of our modern world. Look for Bibliophiles, that's Bibliophiles with an F, wherever you get your podcasts, or find curriculum materials, online classes, and book clubs at centerforlit.com. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying which is about a lot of incurable people as well. Now that I think about it, we're going to discuss the final quarter of this book. I guess that means we can talk about the whole book now. We can talk about the book as one cohesive whole. We've come to the end of As I Lay Dying, and that means uh, we've got lots to unpack. Lots to unpack. We have um, some plot to unpack. We've got some ants, distaste to unpack, some POV stuff to unpack. And then next week, of course, we're going to answer your questions. So if you have a question for us that you would like us to address on the podcast, you can email me. You can send that to david at goldberrybooks.com or you can post it over on our Facebook page. That is, of course, facebook.com slash close reads. And we'll have a thread there where you can leave a comment and we'll get to as many as we can as, as we usually do when we get to the end of a book. Tim, right before we actually hit record, you said, and I quote, I'm saving my raves of this book for when we actually record. End quote. That could, of course, mean that you have, like, like you want to rave like a mad person, or it could mean that you have a, you want to give a, a positive review to the experience of reading this book. Which of those two categories does your particular ravings fall under? I want to give positive reviews i this book it it takes a little while or at least it took me a while to warm up to it because i think the shifting viewpoints i don't just enjoy that as a technique i I kind of recognize its value but Mm -hmm. um it's just kind of jarring i think every book that i read that has more than say three or four viewpoints i tend to be a little bit kind of put off by it at the beginning. Um, I think a gathering of old men, I was a little bit put off by it at the beginning, but then halfway through both that book and as I lay dying, um, it just clicked in. Like I feel like I kind of like sat down with the characters and yeah, I was kind of both relieved and also sad to have this book in because I just think it's a masterpiece. Heidi, where do you feel the same way? I, I, of course, I definitely feel the same way, but I did find myself in the last couple of chapters just, and this speaks to Faulkner's greatness, what I'm about to say. This is a rave, not a rant, um, but it is so 
excruciating. Like this is like, this book is very troubling and very, very sad. We've read a lot of sad books, but this is one of the saddest. Yeah. But again, I think that speaks to Faulkner's greatness. It's a rave, not a rant. But I was relieved when it was over. I was so glad to close the book. Um, but I also, so, but I also like loved every minute of it. Yeah, makes sense. Before we go too far, I just want to say, I mean, help is on the way. Our next novel that we're reading is about a totalitarian regime, you know, in like it's a rough easier. overlay in Russia. Not sad and at all. It's, I'm so glad that that is just far in the distant past, that kind of authoritarian, um, you know, yeah, like the li- like grief of, and human suffering. It's all and, behind us with Faulkner. Right. More well. No, I'm trying to make a joke about fearful skip in the park. I'm trying to make a joke about <laughs> the invasion of Ukraine. Is what I'm trying to make a joke about because that happened. Oh, yesterday. I did not get that. I was in literary world. No, so, no, I stepped but, out of literary man, world into I like the semi-real world. About that. Okay. Be- between now and when people listen to this, who knows what's happened? I know. Seriously, who knows? It takes us to you know, to get those episodes up. So, okay. How about you, David? Rant, rave? What were you? Oh, no, it's great. I love this book. Well, that sounded emphatic. (laughs) Simple. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode and we'll be back to answer your questions next week. (laughs) (laughs) We just want to, every now and then we got to subvert some expectations. Hey, let's talk about the title briefly before we get into things into, you know, some conversation on, on the actual plot. Now that we have finished the book, how do you read the, uh, the title? Who, for example, who is the I in As I Lay Dying? Do you, are we, is it, you know, at first you think it's going to be like Addie, but she spends most of the book dead, not dying. Unless, actually, how do you all read? Like, how do you, what do you, you're muted, but how do you... <laughs> I was I was trying to signal you not to ask me right away because I was going to look up the quote from the Odyssey. Um, so it is a quote from the Odyssey, which of course that makes a right. lot of sense coming from Faulkner, who's incredibly well read uh, and, and an an amazing classical author. And it is Agamemnon speaking of I think a goddess when he's going down to the underworld. So I'm actually going to look that up while you take this question to Tim, so I don't get it wrong. I'll I'll just jump in, and if I'm I'll risk being um, corrected by hearing the quote from the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you read it any other way than as kind of like Addie. This is surely her. She is the one who is dying at the beginning of the book. She is the one who is dead at the end of the book, even though she actually speaks like from the grave, question mark. Um, I think it's it just seems to me like it's got to be Addie. And everything about this book is what happens in the wake of Addie's death. You know, she's kind of like the glue that's holding together this really tortured family. And absent her influence, Ants is now the patriarch. And golly, it could not be worse. But that's another story. Um, Heidi? Any insights from the Odyssey? 
So the reason that I think it matters here uh, is because it is Agamemnon, another man who considers himself a victim of his wife, although he is in truth the perpetrator, right? Um, and and the uh, and that part of Anse's character threads throughout the book, right? He is the victim. Everybody else is the perpetrator, even though he is inflicting damage right and left everywhere he goes. That's the reason why I think that this quote matters in getting it right. I think you're right. On the surface of the story, it is about Addie. It also extends to all of us, right? We're also being chased by the buzzards, so to speak. We're also decaying and falling into the grave, even in life. You know, we are in the midst of death kind of thing. And that's one of the kind of the the disturbing elements of the story. It's this long contemplation of the dying of the spirit of each character as well as the backdrop of a literal death. And it's a quote by a man who is inflicted damage to everybody in the Iliad and the Odyssey claiming himself as a victim. Um, and speaking of his wife, Clytemnestra, who cheated on him legitimately, right? Just like Addie cheated on ants. Um, but it was in response to his, in, in, in the Iliad, his, uh, her adultery is in response to Agamemnon's uh, very deep wounds inflicted on their family by selling his children, uh, by sacrificing his daughter Iphigenia for fair winds to Troy. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of overlap from the title and the quote that it comes from into the content of the book. For sure. For sure. Boy, that kind of changes everything hearing that it's from Agamemnon because he does n map so neatly onto ants. I mean, as you just explained, Heidi. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe I know we talked about ants last week, but by the end of the book, I thought, have we read a more villainous character on Close Reads? than ants like you know we've read some really great um anti-heroes you know opponents to the protagonists but for some reason ants might be i think he might be the one that i just find to be the most despicable you know Oh, he's so awful. And I didn't remember that. As I got to the end, that whole section with Dewey Dell, when she's like begging for the money and uh, I, it's just, he's, I, I definitely, I, I definitely don't think a throat punch is enough for that guy. Yeah. I think we need to go. Yeah. He needs more than a throat punch. Heidi is David. Is there, who's worse? Who have we read? That's worse. I was just going to ask you if you think who you think is worse. Um, uh, Iago or Ants? Ooh, Iago's great. Uh, That's a great response. What What about Lady Macbeth? I think I think Lady Macbeth and Macbeth Ants. are so. They're like, it's, it's a Ants. combined the yeah. couplehood of evil. Ants is running solo, so I give it to Ants. Iago might have a shot. I mean, we haven't read Harry Potter, but the only other one I can think that I hate more is Dolores Umbridge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what? she's awful. Okay. I don't ask this question because I disagree, but what is it that makes Ants villainous, not just 
Great question. Not just a bumbling fool. Because there is one way you can read this where he's just a moron. Mm-hmm. But is sure. but, but we've discussed him as if he is, you know, the villain of the book. And it take the book takes some time to reveal that. Um, because the, the obstacle roll. seems to be, you know, at first the obstacle seems to be the river, right? Like there's this sort of natural obstacle that's keeping the people from this family from getting what they want or, or trying to achieve the thing that they're trying to achieve for the sake of their mother. And on the surface, it's like this noble concept, right? They're going to do the wishes of the mother. They're going to take her to where she wants to go. And they're going to brave the river and the landscape and their, their circumstances. And they're going to try to achieve that. And then... Right around the time that river rises up, Anse's character also begins to emerge as something more than just a fool. But where, how would you, like, how would you, how do you think that actually happens? Uh, Tim, what, what, what do you think about that? Like, you were the first one to really come down hard on the show on, well, maybe, maybe I don't know, actually remember which of you two it was that came down. You, you equal opportunity criticism of Anse, I would say. I think, I think Heidi started the discussion and I just. Yeah, I think she did. Yeah, she did. She, te- she texted. She texted yeah, that right. thing and said that she wanted to kick him in the throat or whatever. I think what gets me about Ants is that he overrides one of the most powerful and positive natural bonds that human beings have, a parent for children. And he, his slovenliness, his laziness, his self-pity, everything. He he sacrifices all of the kind of like goodness of that parental love. And basically he kind of sacrifices like Agamemnon, his children on the altar of his self-pity. And I think it's like, if someone is pursuing, um, like I get the drive toward power and I get how anti-heroes can be, can kind of like succumb to the drive for power or the drive for wealth or the drive for prestige. All those things are kind of like, for me, understandable temptations. And you kind of just like give into what I think is like a natural impulse. And you let those things, the drive for power, prestige, wealth kind of override you. But for me, Ants is overcoming something good in him and sub projecting it to like just this complete, I just keep coming up with like self-pity. Everything is sacrificed for his own self-pity. Yeah. I think that's Hmm. well said. But is that how you normally think of a villain? That not necessarily that they sacrifice everything for self-pity. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Like we're talking about him being villainous, not just being a fool. No, I think he's wicked. And I, I think that what that what Tim said is right. Part of the reason why it's more despicable to us is because he's in a uh, because he's a father. Right. Right. Because these are his children right. and they seem so vulnerable. And and I think that it's partly also a huge part of it is the way Faulkner structured the book, which comes back to Faulkner's genius again, because we're behind the eyes of the characters, seeing their vulnerabilities and seeing all of them trying, like fumbling in their inept ways to do the right thing for their mother, for their family and for their father. Um And I mean, poor Cash in this section, his 
just he he offers himself essentially as a sacrificial lamb um and 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 the damage that ants does to him is uh and to do to all of them in in very personal ways and i think that's what we have in this book one thing i i couldn't i mean i remember this section reading it as a teenager um and like we've talked about not getting it um, now that I know the Agamemnon Iphigenia story and the reference in the title, I I go back to what you said earlier, Tim. This is a book about a father sacrificing his children for favorable wins to Troy, right? Yeah, so that right. he could win a personal battle right. and glory. So he get his teeth, so that he can he can replace. You know, they have all lost everything that matters to them. Darl, his sanity. Jewel, his horse. Dewey, Dell, the money for the abortion. Vardaman, his innocence. Uh, Cash, maybe his life, yep. and definitely, definitely his ability his to walk and yep. work, which is the only thing that matters to him, right? All of them have these deeply held treasures that are sold by ants for his teeth yeah. right and that is the story it's and i i don't think i really i didn't remember that at all mm. from reading it in high school like it's not really an odyssey of a family to bury their mom it's a story of the exploitation of the weak by by a powerful by the person who's supposed to love them the mm-hmm. most and i think that upending of of the family like the inversion the diabolical inversion of of ants as a father is the core of the book that i i didn't remember mm. um and that's what makes him a villain yeah as a side note the only other faulkner that we've read on this show is involves the same general storyline we read a barn right. burning barn which burning. anyone who has not read it like do yourself a favor. Oh my goodness. If you just finished reading As I Lay Dying, then you're kind of like very well prepared for the kind of stream of consciousness. And I think As I Lay, excuse me, I think A Barn Burning is much easier to read. It's an absolute like tour de force story. And it's about a father. It's about this just like horrible, abusive father who betrays his family. Everything is sacrificed on like his own internal hollowness, everything. It's like, it's like this, this vacuum that just sucks everybody into the vacuum. Mm. And hopefully I think that story for me has a glimmer of hope at the end of it. I wonder, I wonder if this book has any hope at the end of it. Maybe that's also a conversation for a, a little bit later. Yeah, we need to talk about the end. Well, you know what? Let's just do it now. Yeah. Because we can work our way backwards. I want to talk about Darl and his demise, for lack of a better term. Uh, At least his, perhaps his mental demise. Uh, Let's talk about that, though. That's a great question. Does this book have any hope at the end? I mean, I think we also read A Rose for Emily at some point on the the show, which is Mm -hmm. another, an early story by Faulkner. And it also asks, has this sort of, static as in it's like stasis um ending where you're not sure really what's coming next you know the resolution is not something that he tends to you know worry too much about (laughs) um so so when the story ends when we have this stasis is there is there any hope i mean are any characters in even the same circumstances that they were at the beginning of the book, or is everybody in a worse state? Heidi, what do you think? 
I think they're in a worse state. I don't, I don't, I'd have to be convinced that there's hope for the characters within the framework of the story. I think there's resilience within each of the characters. Like there is a, to use a very Christian term, like there is the, the Imago Dei, like the core incorruptible humanity of each person, each soul. I think we can see that in, um, in our characters with the exception of Ants, who I think is just the villain of the story uh, and intended by Faulkner to be the villain. Um, I don't think it's just that we don't like him. I think he's given to us as kind of a personification of, of, of wickedness within the culture of the, of this story. Um, I, I do think that there's hope for the characters in the sense that by this time we know them and love them and know their strengths and weaknesses. And they could at any point choose to um, harness the power of their strengths. But I don't think that the circumstances of the story leave any of them in any state of, of um, upward trajectory in the story. I think they are all stripped and betrayed and left for left for dead. Like they're laying there dying. It seems to me like the only person you could sort of make a case is in better shape, and you got to hear me out on this, is Ants himself. He ends the story with a new set of teeth and a living wife, but it's kind of, it's, it's the moral of his story is, so what if he gained the whole world? He, so what if he gained new teeth and a new wife and lost his soul? And if anything, mm-hmm. like this book says anything, Ants has lost his soul. Did he lose his soul during the book or would he already lose his soul at the beginning? I think he was gone. That was gone. Yeah, I think it was gone before the beginning. So before then, the, based on what we know of his life and their family's life, what co- where did he lose it? What caused him to lose it? Or is this just the story? You mean before the book begins? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Do we? I don't know that we really get much on that. It's you know well, what you know what okay. I, I want to come to you in a second, Heidi. I just I just had this thought. Uh-huh. I think no, at the no, beginning please. of the book, um, we kind of like we find this family is in distress. We get a third of the way into the book, and this distress that the family is in is like it's profound. It's not just the loss of Addie, but everybody is suffering, and we don't really know why. By halfway through the book, we're like, now we know why. Ants is the reason why. Like almost everybody who is suffering in one way or another is suffering directly as a response to his abdication of any ability to be a remotely capable father. Two thirds of the way through, we're like actually seeing him kind of like execute the plan of bad fatherhood. And by the end, everyone is just wrecked. You know, and so I, I think it takes a little while in this book to figure out exactly what has caused the problem. And I think by the end of the book, Faulkner lays most of the blame at the feet of ants. I mean, even the, the episode where um, the neighbor is trying to help Cash repair his leg from this kind of makeshift 
cast that they've put on it. And this neighbor, I, for me, is it Peabody? Is that who it is? I can't remember the name of the character's name. Is enraged at the lack of care. Yes. Right? It and he's going to lose his leg now. This neighbor knows he's going to lose his leg. And what is Anse's response? You know, he doesn't have much of a response. It's just kind of like, yeah, it was somebody else's problem. Did the best we could. Like, whatever, man, whatever. So I think Ants is the way he is because of Addie. I think it was. So in this, and I, and I, I want to, there's a tragedy within a tragedy. There's overlapping circles of victimhood and perpetration in this novel. It's very complex psychologically. And in the Addie chapter, Ants is not bad as a husband. Like she, he comes to her, wants to marry her. It's not romantic, but he clearly wants to please her, right? Like she, he asks her where her people are from. She says, Jefferson, he thinks they're wealthy. And, um, and so he says, well, I do have a little bit of property I can provide for you. Like he seems to genuinely want to provide for this woman. And then she has this like very dark and complex relationship with their like bedroom life. And, and that is explored. I mean, very, um, you know, there's even some responses on the Facebook page about her response to their sexual relationship and her motherhood. Mm. Right. And how complex that was within her and how she calls his approaches to her, a violation of her selfhood. Mm. Right. And, and then, and so then she has an affair and in every way, this is like a Clytemnestra Agamemnon story. She's asserting like herself. She feels betrayed by him, right? She feels betrayed by him. And so she goes behind his back and then robs him of his manhood. And then she uses the children as weapons against him, right? And, um, and makes these very strange transactional claims about her about the children, right? Cash is mine. Then I found I had Daryl. And so I hated ants. There's no explanation for that. Mm. Why did she love cash and not Daryl? We don't know. Right. But we do know she loved Jewel the most. And, and then it says once she had Jewel, then she, as, and I quote the book, gave him Dewey Dell and Vardaman in exchange for cash and Jewel. Mm. Right. So there's this very strange, like very, very strange overlapping of victimhood and perpetration within their marriage that is now, I think, being taken out on their children. And I don't think he's entirely to blame for that. I think she has contributed to that, which is why within the absence of her, all of these things are coming to the surface. It's that's so interesting, Heidi, because I read that section and I I don't know if this is like not a very good close reading, but I read her response to his advances in the bedroom to be that Ants was like, maybe he was violent or like at a minimum, his advances were like unwelcome at certain times. And she made it clear that they were unwelcome and still he advanced. And so I read it and this may not be, true, but I read it as like, yeah, Ants is a bum, 
of, I mean, like I wouldn't put mm-hmm. it past him at all to be violent in the bed in the bedroom because I've seen plenty of evidence that he has no like sense of propriety, no sense of affection for those who are in his care or that he is supposed to love. So, yeah, if she did not, if if so, fair or unfair, I took his sexual advances to be tainted in some way, not just because, right. yeah, I took him to be tainted and potentially well, violent. And I don't disagree with that. I think that that's probably true, but she was clearly a very troubled woman, which we can see in the beginning of it when she talks about how she liked to whip the children to draw blood so that she felt connected to them. Right. right. So she is a very troubled person and, and, and her response within their marriage and to her own family was so dark mm. and um, internally troubled that I, I see her as contributing to his downfall just as he contributes to hers. Mm. I think it's like a shared kind of plummet from grace. I can see that. That's a, so, I really like that phrase, a shared plummet from grace. But I don't want to, I don't know that I want to put that on a poster, Heidi. <laughs> That's not going to be my poster. No, I don't want that to be your poster. I still have work to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah workshop work that to one. Do. Yep. So, okay. Right. I have a, David, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I've got a question that I've been thinking about. You know, I, I've been reading a lot of Wendell Berry recently. And one of the things about Berry is we talked about, like Faulkner, he seems to be trying to give voice to people that have been forgotten. But, but when Barry does that, he gives a sense that, you know, like you read some of his characters, even, even a character like Burley Coulter, who is certainly problematic in some ways. He doesn't abide by most of the cultural rules and you know, things like that, but he has a, a sense of dignity about him. So Barry gives voice to these people and he makes them dignified in, in their own, in their own sort of way, right? Like there's a sort of wisdom to them, to the way of life, even when they're making mistakes, you know, you don't ever come away thinking that very many of these people are villainous, for example, Mm. or as, as bleakly drawn as the characters in this book. Here we get Faulkner, who seems to be trying to give voice to a people, a, a sort of cast of people that he feels have been forgotten and seems from the way he talks about them and his goals and his work to have respect for them. And yet we get a book here where these characters are all on some continuum of madness. And, and then the formal choices that he makes seem to be emphasizing that continuum of madness, either whether we're talking about a character saying that his mother's a fish or his mother's a horse or the way they, the way they narrate their stories or the choices that they make within the, within the stories. So if he is trying to give voice or if he has respect for this cast of people in this part of the world that he's from, why do we get a story that is bleak to this degree that contains all these characters who it seems like have so little worth imitating or, or however you want to put it. And I've been trying, I've been thinking through that as I've been reading it because I, we always, that's the Faulkner has this reputation for wanting to give voice to these people. And it does seem like in some ways he respects them. And yet 
no one would ever want to like, he doesn't create people that you want to imitate or you want to be friends with, or you want to be around or whose way of life you want to, you'd like want to actively try to preserve. So what's like, what's the equation there? Like, why does he do it this way? Like, why does it have to be so bleak if he wants to give voice to them? I, it seems to me, and Heidi, I want to hear what you say. Like, Wendell Berry creates characters that we aspire to. Like, we want to be like the best of his characters. We want to be like Hannah Coulter. And it seems to me like the other side of that coin is where William Faulkner dwells. And instead of drawing characters that we wish to emulate, he's drawing characters that we pity. I think in that healthy sense of the word pity, like, man, Dewey Dell, my heart just broke for that poor woman, just absolutely broke. And I mean, I know because my dad has told me the stories of growing up in Kentucky about young women who got pregnant out of wedlock. They were just kind of put away. You just like, they were just outcast from society for six, seven months of their pregnancy because it brought so much shame upon their family. And you see her kind of like accumulating that shame. But if you know her whole story and you know the kind of father and potentially mother that she had, I mean, goodness, you can't help but think this woman does not deserve like a scolding. It's not, this is not what's going to help her or anybody but like i think like a genuine commiseration for her situation is what she needs and i felt that william faulkner really draws that out of us and i mean it's it's funny because i do think that i mean wendell berry and william faulkner are so profoundly different in their style in their goals but they're almost operating as kind of like in Jungian terms, one is operating in the light, Wendell Berry, and the other is kind of like showing the shadow. But they mm. both have the capacity to kind of elevate the soul. They're just operating in on different terrains. One is very well lit terrain and the other is very dark terrain. I goodness said that better myself. I really like what you said about the difference between aspirational fiction as represented by Wendell Berry when he's portraying the virtues um, of this kind of lost American ideal uh, that he even says, I know that not everybody is like this. I know that this isn't realistic. It's intended to be aspirational. It's intended to draw the soul towards recognizing lost good right um and 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 celebrating it and inviting us to participate as best we can in a culture that has shifted completely um and versus faulkner that i really like what you said about pity yes i mean like a true catharsis this like release of pity and fear Mm. goes into faulkner's writing i think in a very different way than with um with wendell berry And I find leaving this book that I have a greater love for my country and its people than I did before I read it, Mm. even though none of these people are very likable. Mm. And, and that's an achievement. That's a, that's an incredible achievement. Mm. So at the end of the book, we, we talked a lot about sympathies. Who do, who are your sympathies most with at the end of the book? There's some, we've talked about, you know, cash and there was some 
some somebody call it cash bashing, uh, <laughs> maybe a little bit extreme, but, um, you know, I talked about how much cash was, is appealing to me as a character. Uh, Darl ends up put away Dewey Dell and what she endures. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I don't think anyone has a lot of sympathy for ants, but where at the end of the book, have, have your sympathies shifted at all? Or do you feel like you've, it just kind of like reinforces where you were feeling halfway through the book about who you cared, who you most cared for and sympathized for. Tim, what about you? I feel the most sympathy for Darl and Dewey Dell. I, I love Jewel as a character. Mm-hmm. I, I somehow sense because he's just made of such rawhide that he's kind of, he's going to be okay. Like he's definitely suffered the whips of his father's yawning, you know, self need. Um, but I kind of have the hope that he's got enough metal to kind of like find his way through. Man, Cash is another heartbreaker. I mean, he's going to be lame, probably. Um, his livelihood, I mean, how is he going to make his living? And what? who is there to fall back on if he can't make a living? So for me, Dewey Dell, Darl, and Cash are the ones that I feel the most for. What about you, Heidi? I mean, I think in this last, I just all of them. Yeah, I can't pick. Just all I of them. I can't pick. Like because Vardaman is, he's just a child. Yeah, I forgot like Vardaman. He, like he's just a little boy, and he's like the whole book. He's trying to make sense of everything and like naming things. I can just see him, like with his like this little like earnest frowny face and his little like bare feet, just like Darl is my brother. Darl is going to Jefferson. Like I, I was just like so heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, hey Heidi, can I, interrupt- I was having this conversation? Oh yeah, I, I want to interrupt yeah, you and please. just ask what you, what did you make of Darl is my brother? Darl is my brother. Darl is my brother. Did you, what did you make of that kind of repetition? Well, I mean, on a literary sense, it's complex because Darl was making all these claims about his identity. Right. And so I, but in terms of like the psychology of this little boy, I think he's just trying to make sense of things and the things that do make sense, he keeps repeating. Right. And that is like heartbreaking to me. Um, He's, I, I think Faulkner's doing something on the literary level there that has to do with the question of identity, right? Um, and who is Darl? Which Darl set fire to the barn, right? Yeah. Like that's, I think that's part of kind of what is, ta- that's the thread that's tying some of these narratives together. And Vardaman's a part of that because Vardaman is the one who sees everybody as a whole um, and, and everybody as simple and members of a family, which should not be the job of the youngest member mm. of the family. It should never be the job of the youngest and the most vulnerable to, to, to know who the family is and to be the only one who sees them as a whole. But that's the, that's, what's fallen to Vardaman, right? Um, and that is just a heartbreaking reality of this, not just dysfunction, but like psych psychotic madness, as David said, of this family. But I think, yeah, on that psychological level, it's just him. He's lost his brother, so he's claiming him as his brother. Mm. And that's really sad. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, you know who I think I have I have the most sympathy for? <laughs> who? <laughs> that new wife. Oh my 
goodness i know when, when that happened like i got this you get that chill where you're just like that poor woman that those poor teeth mm-hmm. yeah that guy's you know that guy doesn't <laughs> have any teeth because he grinds them to the bone probably you know i i i felt really bad for this future wife present wife also but i also got this sense like man she if she said yes after 24 hours you know i have a feeling they might be a, like they might share a similar kind of view of the world you know like i think she might be like a nice female ants you know, or like if they connected that quickly and don't we get a description about her eyes? Like aren't her eyes kind of mean? So I got the, I, my sense is like, yeah, she might just be like exactly what aunt's liking because she's of the same cloth as him. Or, yeah. Or she, I mean, and it's also, or go ahead, David. I was just going to say, or she is in a desperate state, much like Dewey Dell. You know, you, you don't know what, what desperations cause people to... No, I'm not saying the book tells us that. Right. You, you just... I think he, he'd leave some things open. Yeah. A kind of duck-shaped woman, which uh-huh. is... That's a great description because yeah. I know exactly what she looks like and how she walks, uh-huh. right? A kind of duck-shaped woman all dressed up with them kind of hard-looking Popeyes like she was daring air a man to say nothing. That's, daring air a man to say nothing is a good phrase. one sentence. Yeah. 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 They're all just end up in quite a state, right? Yeah. Which the quote from the Odyssey that the, that the title references, which I, you can read this book without knowing the Odyssey. That's, I mean, let me just say that, but the quote is takes place in book 23 when Agamemnon is describing to, excuse me, that's not right. He's in the underworld and he's describing to uh, it's, so it's the ghost of Agamemnon describing his death to Odysseus and saying, as I lay dying, the woman with the dog eyes, meaning his wife Clytemnestra, who murdered him, would not even close my eyes on my body as I sank, as my shade went into the ground. And I'm butchering the quote, but the point is that he, he's blaming uh, his wife Clytemnestra for his death and his, his has this like kind of final grievance to him, but he's speaking from the pit of hell. He's speaking from the underworld. And I think we do have in the story kind of this odyssey of a family into hell being led by the father. And that's how the book, that's the trajectory of the book. And that's how it closes. Well, let's talk about the, the fire and speaking of inferno yeah so we've got we've got this fire that daryl gets put away for at what why why does daryl descend into madness at what point does that seem to become clear that he's descending into madness it's such an interesting juxtaposition formally in terms like in terms of the narrative because we come to rely on daryl as the book goes on for his eloquence and for his for the fact giving of what's happening you know we talked about how like amidst all of the strange stream of consciousness is stream of conscious conscious nigh <laughs> whatever uh the the uh we we are able to latch on to daryl because the plot happens when daryl narrates then at the end of the book he goes away and interestingly cash becomes the one who we rely on he's less eloquent but he's giving us the facts of you know 
Ansa's new wife and all those sorts of things. So where does that madness come from? Where does it take place? Why, why does he descend into madness? Are we certain that he does descend into, that, that he really did set the fire? All these questions come to the fore. Tim, do you have, would you like to answer any of those? Would you like to contemplate any of those, even if, or if answer is the wrong word? If there's much of a stabilizing and good force in the family after Addie's death, it seems to me like it's Darl. And that's based on he's trying to get the family to make a wise decision when they're crossing the river. He has, albeit in very poetic language, he seems to have the most kind of maybe I'll call it a rational outlook or kind of like a logical approach to the world. Um, and I think it feels to me like he is trying to carry the burden of family. And I think he is, he, by the end of the book, just felt pressure from every possible point within the family. And at some point he snaps, he just can't do it anymore. And I mean, maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into him, but he's kind of seems like he's the, um, he acts in some ways like the oldest brother, the one who's kind of like the caretaker for everybody or the oldest sibling, I should say, who's kind of the caretaker for everybody. And he has this kind of like really rich inner life, but he's kind of like always looking out for everybody else. And then finally, like the pressure just grows too much. The weight's too much to bear. Mm. But it, it's a little bit murky to me. I'll admit it's a little bit murky why exactly he ends up like being put away in an asylum. Do you have a better idea than I do, Heidi? No, I think it's very, I, I think it's unclear within the narrative uh, we get. And, and like I said earlier, I think in the last couple, maybe the last couple of podcasts, um, Darl knows everybody but himself he talks about everybody's inner life but his own and we hardly ever get like we get really throughout the whole story no uh he's he's the one we know the least about even though he's the one he who speaks the most mm -hmm. i think the most telling thing we learned about darl is that his mother hated him from the moment she conceived mm. him and when she found out she was pregnant with him she hated him. Mm. And that I think is maybe the most psychologically telling bit of factual information we get about Darl's inner life. Or that, that's not even his inner life. That's just the circumstances of his way his mother feels about him, which is pretty determining of a person's life. How <laughs> mad do we really think and he is though? That's a great question. It is clear. I mean, and, and, for, for our listeners, like this is a debated point in American letters that people have written many mm -hmm. learned right, right. psychological treatises on like throughout. This is one of those like people have spilled a lot of ink on Darl's madness yeah, um, yeah. in the literary world. Um, Hamlet's his, madness, his, Darl's madness, exactly, Ahab's madness. Yes. Exactly. His narrative definitely fragments at the, right before the barn burning. Um, and we have outside corroboration that he set the fire from both Dewey Dell and Vartman. Well, so, okay. So the Dewey Dell thing is interesting though, because she's the one that kind of like turns him in. Right. But he also knows her secret. Yes. So the question of how mad he is, I think is still up in the air because is Dewey Dell acting in her own best interests to get her secret locked away. 
rights? We do. That's a big question. Vardaman's outside corroboration to me is a fact, kind of like we know that Hamlet's father's ghost is real because the watchmen see him. Like it's not Banquo's ghost and in, in that's question mark in Macbeth. I think that the, the story pretty, I think Faulkner wants us to believe that Doral set the fire. And that's why he gives us Vardaman's outside corroboration. I, yeah, I mean, the question is, why uh, would Darl set the fire? Right. So that's the question on the table, not whether or not he did it. His narrative definitely fragments and he begins to make less sense and he trails off, um, which can be explained by either he is truly mad or he has, as you said, Tim, some kind of like psychological, temporary psychological breakdown because of the stress of this family odyssey. Mm-hmm. And he's yet another kind of, and it's not really his, it's not really that he's insane as much as he's having like a breakdown. And if given, if treated kindly, he could heal. Yeah. Yeah. So Cora, the beginning says that people, the the Darl is weird, right? Like people are kind of unsettled by him. And it seems like he's, has insight into people. And so that makes them uncomfortable but is that the same thing as it seems to me that is that the same thing as madness like i still think there's a question of whether or not he's deserves to be whether he set the fire or not deserves to go where he ends up going Mm -hmm. well and it could be very practical right i mean and if it is a temporary psychotic break then he could really have just not thought about the fact that they are that that it's he just could have like wanted to get rid of the coffin because it's it's in the barn and he could have been attempting to cremate her right and just, just like get this whole hellish saga over with over. yeah mm-hmm. right um and so it could have been an act of mercy towards his mother um and so there yeah again it in in, in which case it, it's an action of sanity not insanity Mm. perhaps i i had a thought um i saw 60 minutes about a month ago and they followed this story about a u.s former fbi agent who had been hired as a private investigator um to try to treat Anne frank's story as a cold case in other words how did Anne Frank and her family who were in hiding in, were they in Amsterdam or the Netherlands at least? Like who outed them basically was the question. Yeah. And this FBI agent from the U.S. went in and he had a lot of financial resources and he kind of went over all of the case evidence, you know, and it's kind of been treated like a cold case for quite a while now. And at the end of his investigation, he's like, I think I know who did it. And the man who he thinks did it, it was kind of shocking because it was a Jewish man. And everyone was like, wait, what? A Jewish man outed a Jewish family in hiding? How can this possibly be? How could, and there were kind of, there were reasons for it. This was, you know, and some people kind of speculate the man who outed the Frank family was working with the Nazis in exchange for the protection of his own family. And 
one of the kind of closing interviews was, look, it's really easy to point the finger at this man and say, you betrayed your own people. How could you, how could anybody do such a thing? But the interviewer said, you've never lived under a totalitarian regime. You don't know the sorts of things that you will do in those sorts of circumstances. And he didn't Mm -hmm. say like, you're kind of in an ethical free zone at that point. He didn't, you know, go that far, but he did say, People act in complete violation of their own ethical convictions when they're put inside the kind of pressure cooker that was Europe in whatever that was, you know, 1940 or whatever year it was. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in some ways, I kind of feel that about this whole family, maybe with the exception of Anne's, because he seems like he's the kind of perpetrator more often than not. Everyone... Um, is under this sort of pressure and they act in ways that if we just saw them on the street corner, like if we, um, if we saw some of their actions from the street corner, we'd be like, how dare you, you know, like Jewel attacking the man or like calling the guy an SOB and the guy attacking him and he's like ready to start a fight. And if you just saw Jewel in the street corner doing that, you'd be like, oh my gosh, that guy is out of control. But when you know Jewel's whole backstory, you're like, I feel for you, buddy. I really feel for you. I wish you could have like just passed the other way and not gotten in a fight with this guy. But boy, I can sympathize. You know, mm. the situation you're in is appalling and it, and it makes people act in ways that would, they would never in good conscious act like in a more free, open, less oppressive kind of world. And that's to kind of bring it back to this question that I was thinking about at the beginning of these podcasts, how much of these characters and maybe how much of our own behavior is driven by what is known to us about us and how much of our drives are motivated by things that are kind of like, like just kind of on the edge of our conscious minds. And, and my kind of result about thinking about these characters in that light is I think the more external pressure that you're under, the more you kind of your own drives and desires kind of move away from your conscious minds and they tend to get a little bit buried. Like, I don't know that Jewel really knew in that moment why he called, you know, why he's muttering SOB. Um, I don't know why he's, I don't think he knows why he's so inclined to have, to get into a fight because he's under so much pressure all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it kind of drives his conscious mind a little bit into the dark. It seems like this is in many ways a book about people who already are burdened or grieving because of the just general state of their life being descending into an additional state of grief just over the circumstance. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. that grief gives them this task, like the, the thing that leads to that grief gives them this task they have to do and the circumstances relating uh, surrounding or related to that task are another level of grief and it's just grief upon grief upon grief mm. that's impacting their their minds and yeah. their souls in general like yeah 
yeah, it's just a bit of time. I mean, I think it's grief, David. I think it's like, it's so many other things also. It's like extreme poverty. It's this like profoundly dysfunctional family system that they're in. Like no one can communicate with each other. No one can resolve about like the way to go forward. Everything is done kind of under the cloak of deception. Nobody's just open and like honest and forthright with each other. Everything is just deception, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like grief is this umbrella and there are all these other things that are happening underneath the kind yeah. of darkness of grief. So, okay. I, we talked about how spark notes can be useful for this book. And I got curious about how they described each of the characters. And I made a little, I took two adjectives that seem to be the two most prominent adjectives from each character. And I'm curious to know, like each character in the family, um, I'm curious to know whether you think these two adjectives for each character would fit. And mm. if not, come up with our what own. What the substitutes are? And this is kind of one of those like high school English class assignments you do in class. But it's kind of interesting because it would be, I'd be curious to know how the sort of spark notes is to some degree some sort of a consensus take on how people think about these characters. So I'm just curious mm. and it's, it's the one that people are using. Right. So let's, I would be curious to know, let's kind of assess if you will, how they look at these characters. So the, the, I, I took what seemed to be the most sort of prominent adjectives that the way that they described. So for Addie, it says it describes her sort of as bitter and distant. Would you say that those are two, two defining characteristics of Addie? The, like, do those summarize who she is or was sufficiently? Yeah, I think so. Tim, would you? Internally bitter, externally d- distant. Yeah, that seems right. I wish it, I, bitter, absolutely. I might quibble a little bit with distant because I don't think she's distant with Jewel. I mean, she's okay. distant and seem yeah. like with everybody else, but yeah. that might just be a quibble. I don't know if that's a substantial complaint. I think, yeah. Yeah. Distant uh, ants, It describes him as selfish and afflicted. Is that Duh, those aren't dark. That's not bad enough for him. But afflicting. But. <laughs> afflicting rather than afflicted. Yeah. So the reason it says afflicted is um, he's got a hunchback. He lacks his teeth. But it does say that his instincts are overwhelmingly selfish, which is that's an interesting phrase because it does seem like so much of this book is people backed into a corner and then their most, uh, ob- their their most like foregrounded instincts then come out. So when you're like when an animal's backed into a corner, it acts instinctively, right? And each of these characters, the notion of instinct applied to each of these characters in this book is kind of would be an interesting thing to, yeah. to think about if you're rereading it. By the way, I just have to insert this. I have like a favorite line from this band I loved called the Cowboy Junkies, and they oh, yeah. took this line I didn't know from you liked Cowboy Junkies. I love I love them. Um, the line is a man in a crisis falls back on what he knows best, a murder to murder, a thief to theft. And I looked in their liner notes as a younger person and saw that they attributed it to Faulkner. I don't know where, but it just seems fitting for what you're saying, David. Backed into a corner, people act according to kind of like their habits. Mm. Okay. Uh, cash, it uses the phrases, the words reliable and patient. It talks about, for example, how he is, you know, almost comically or absurdly patient about when he breaks his leg. 
doesn't ever want to complain about I it. I would maybe it's as I would substitute long suffering for patient. I think that's a better I know it's a synonym, but I think it's an precise. important shift. Yeah. Because patient is um yeah, I think it's more precise. Patient is virtuous, whereas with cash, I think he's I think he's the best of the bunch for sure, um, in terms of his character. Um, but he seems long suffering in the sense that he's not, um, his, his long suffering nature is not because he's like setting out to be virtuous as much as because he has like this, um, he's like an ox almost like he's, he's long suffering without, without trying to be virtuous. He just can bear these like heavy, heavy weights. And he's like such a good boy. You know, I don't even want to say good man. Like he's like a good boy. Yeah. He reminds um, me of the horse in Animal yes. Farm. Exactly. What's it, yes. What was his Boxer. name, Heidi? Boxer, Boxer. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It it says that he's one of the few con- consistently stable characters, um, and that's that's an interest. I don't. That might be going a little far for any of these characters as far as calling them stable. But he does have skill, and that skill seems to mm. ground him, like in a way that's healthy okay um jewel tim it it calls him a fierce protector Ooh, i like that um he it also calls him passionate and brooding hmm. you know of all those I, four words fierce is the one that resonates the most for me He's passionate, brooding, guy. mysterious, a fierce protector. Are we, does he like, does, does this? I'm so attracted to Jewel right now. <laughs> he's great. <laughs> he's great. <laughs> he's a, he's, he's a, a one on the Enneagram. He's, he's great. Byronic he's the Byronic hero <laughs> that was born into poverty, right? Um, okay. Uh, Darl, frustrated and sensitive. Okay. Pass. See, I might, I might call Daryl more the protector than Jewel. I, I agree. Right? I don't think Jewel's much. Yeah, I didn't think that was accurate. Yeah, it talks but, about him being a fear. Jewel being a fierce protector of the mother's coffin and things like that. That's true. That's true. Um, it says that Daryl is sensitive and articulate, but frustrated, and his that frustration mm-hmm. is what leads him to incinerate his dead mother. Yeah, light it up because. And I think frustrated, it's good to to define. That doesn't mean the way we use it now, which is when we say, I'm not angry, I'm frustrated, which to us kind of means like a lighter version of rage, (laughs) a more socially acceptable way of being mad. Like I think frustrated in the true sense is like to be dammed up behind something. Like that there's this power that's being unhealthily held back. And in that sense, I think frustrated is a great term for Darl. He's bottled up. He's damned up. Yeah. yeah. But even if he wasn't, would anyone be able to understand him anyway? Right. Uh, Dewey Dell, it says, it kind of just, it doesn't give a ton on Dewey Dell, which is, you know, huh. interesting. Um, but it calls her um, desperate, but then also seems to say that uh, desperate and, and suspicious. That works. I would have said sullen. Desperate Ooh, and sullen, sullen, but suspicious. Work. Yeah. She is sullen. Mm-hmm. She is suspicious. She has every right to be. 
Mm-hmm. Man, the scene with the medical clerk, I guess that's what he was. No. Oh, my gosh. You know, you guys were talking about last episode about ants, and then I started thinking, like, this guy's a real villain? Like, he's actively villainous. Like, he yeah. has the key is making a conscious choice oh, to be yeah. insert whatever t- word you want to use to describe someone yeah. who's doing an evil thing. He's being like ants, I think is evil. He is villainous, but I also wonder how much of it is like, you know, Passive. how much of it is conscious choice. Yeah. Like in the moment and well, just incapacity. Yeah. Well, and I mean, Faulkner's ahead of his time also are probably right in the middle of his time. Right. Cause this was, the, well, Heidi, we are all right in the psycho, middle of our times. Psycho psychoanalysis, right. Was, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this was when people began to understand what we now flippantly call daddy issues it was like right during Faulkner's mm. lifetime. So like, I mean, the way ants treats Dewey Dell, the way every man like that, this is, this is how she ends up pregnant and selling her body to the closest store clerk. It's kind of ants. So. And also because of her mom. But True. Both of them. Okay. Uh, Vardaman, it says, it calls him thoughtful and innocent. It says that he has a lively imagination. Um, and it does, it does use the word, it says that his ramblings at the beginning of the novel border on the maniacal. So I'm curious what you think of that because as the book goes on, I wonder if we kind of settle in and his ramblings seem less maniacal because it felt to me like they kind of normalize this sort of like or stabilize or whatever, as you kind of get used to, to the way he sees the world. I think that's wrong about Vardaman. I don't think that's right. Which part? The maniacal part you disagree with? No, no. I disagree that he is thoughtful. Mm. I, I think he's trying to make sense of the world but i don't like thoughtful to me is like insightful and um cogent right like i i don't offering some sort of wisdom to some degree introspective i don't think he's those things i think he's just a traumatized little boy trying to make sense of the world that makes sense to so yeah that's like he has an innocence that has been traumatized. His innocence is his great loss, right? Jules horse, Dewey mm-hmm. Dell's body, like these, like it's Vardaman's um, innocence. And I, I don't think he's thoughtful, but I think that he's a love. I mean, I love him, I, but yeah. yeah. Anyway, I don't think that's like a core characteristic. The, like a child trying to make sense of the world is just like a normal human thing to do. I agree. I agree. You just mentioned that Dewey Dell's great loss is her body. And you, we talked earlier in this episode about how Addie felt like she didn't have, you know, mm-hmm. bodily autonomy because of um, ants. So then she goes out and has an affair with the preacher. And it's like taking some kind of action or ownership over herself. And then here we get Dewey Dell, who gets pregnant and then. Mm-hmm. is forced to do that. Do you, so so when you say that it's her body, do you mean like that sense of autonomy? Um, what, yeah. And her choice, right? Like she's, huh, Addie's, Addie says 
not in so many words, but in her section, when she speaks for herself, she essentially says that the sexual violation of a man and being and and motherhood itself were the greatest tragedies of her life, which for a healthy, functioning married woman, those should be the greatest joys of a woman's life. Right. Um, And also like the greatest vulnerabilities for sure, but the greatest joy. Mm -hmm. Um, And but for 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 Addie and then for her daughter, sex and motherhood are the worst things that ever happened to them in this book. It's like a sin. And that is a inversion of feminine. It's that's like a very great tragedy, a very, very great loss. It, this is definitely one of those sins of the fathers wrote books, right? Like the cycle, yes. the cyclical nature of no doubt. Yes. One generation's sins leading to the next. Well, we've run out of time for this episode. So, um, Final thoughts from either of you. Heidi, you go first and then then Tim. And then, of course, next week we'll address as much as we can in the questions that you all have. While they're thinking, I'll just remind you that you can put post questions over on the Facebook page where we have our feed or you can email me uh, via david at goldberrybooks.com. And of course, I want to say thank you to Center for Lit and Bibliophiles for sponsoring Close Reads this month. And then lastly, don't forget... Heidi and I did talk about the Death in the Nile movie adaptation. So this is about a 35-minute podcast that you can check out on your feed if you if you missed that one that is available to you. Okay, Heidi, I rambled for approximately 34 seconds. Do you now have a final thought? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, so in Addie's section, she says, this is something I've been thinking about, and I'm going to leave. This is, this is the gap I'm going to leave for our audience and for the two of you and for myself. Um, Addie says in her section that jewel will quote save her from fire and from water and that was why he was born that is her claim mm-hmm. in the book jewel saves her body from the flood and from the fire right so my question though and however if as cash says jewel had left her alone in the flood None of the bad things would have happened. Right? He wouldn't have broken so, his leg. Exactly. Uh-huh. Dewey Dell wouldn't have been essentially raped. Bartman wouldn't have lost his innocence. Anne's wouldn't have come home with teeth and a wife. Like all these things wouldn't have happened if Jewel hadn't done those things, saved the coffin from fire and water. So the thing that I've been thinking about is that the dilemma, the horns of the horns of that dilemma. That is fascinating, Heidi. Right. So this is, (laughs) I mean, whether we talk about it last next time or what, like Faulkner did something really, really cool there. And I, I think it's one of the contemplations of the novel. Mm. I don't know the answer. I'm still thinking about Mm -hmm. it. I was going to say, do you have enough thought to, to talk about it now? <laughs> no. Maybe part I'm of the Q&A? That is a gap. And then maybe somebody can ask that on the Q&A. <laughs> That's really, really interesting. Especially since Jewel is the son of adultery. Mm. And if she had kept her vow, he wouldn't have been born. Yeah. Wow. So that is what I think makes that whole question even more interesting. And ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't want to add anything to that, David. I just kind of want to steep on that smart. one. Yeah, probably wise. 
It's a good question. I can take a walk in the woods now. I know. This is not a book for 17-year-olds to go back to where we started. No, it is not. I think I'm going to go take a walk in the woods with my children and safely get them home. Yeah. Just to like... (laughs) Maybe give them a this hug, tell them how wonderful they are. Is the whole goal of being a parent. Maybe, <laughs> get, maybe give them $10 instead of taking $10 away. No, I mean, let's not, let's not go that let's far. Let's not be crazy. Because <laughs> then they would like lose their teeth, spend all that money on candy. Exactly. <laughs> Want a hug? Earn it. Earn it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um. Well, if you want to get that joke, go to the Facebook page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Heidi posted a Ayn Rand and look for Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand related. Um, one of my favorite things is uh, when when uh, names are like there's a lot of different ways out on the internet to pr- pronounce names, and then just throw chaos into it. It's like why I call Gal Gadot Gal Gadot. It's just like you just gotta just throw some chaos into the world when people are already confused. Like just pl- just, just just go with it. Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand. Tim McIntosh, Tam McIntosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are going to answer your questions uh, next week. So again, Facebook page, email, however you want to get them to us. Um, we are, as was alluded to earlier, going to be diving into 1984, George Orwell's book next. So in the next week or so, you'll get an email uh, where we will have the reading schedule for that. Um, and... After that, I believe we'd have into tests, I believe. I have to check that. No, maybe that's wrong. I thought it went Raisin in the Sun, 1984, Tess. I think maybe it's 84, Raisin in the Sun, then okay. Tess. I'll yeah. have to check. Yeah. Heidi, do you know that for sure? It's a miss. I do not we know. Actually, I thought it was 1984, too, we, but none of us know. I am I'm corrected. It is 1984, then Raisin in the Sun, then Tess of the Dirt okay. Yeah, I was like, this. I literally have this up on a tab on my computer. Okay, yeah. so yeah, <laughs> uh, 84, starting March 11th. Two weeks from today. Yeah, that, that Friday, March 11th, that episode will go up. Then we'll have the one episode on a Raisin in the Sun, um, and then we'll do Tess starting... Um, April 22nd. And of course, Karen Swallow Pryor will be joining us for those episodes. Tim, you'll be having a little break as you, Wed. as we, you embark Prepare on. Prepare for festivities. Yeah, exactly. He's dancing right now. Like, I, well, maybe that was a bit of a stretch to call it Now dancing, I'm dancing. Now, now I'm doing a shoulder like, shake. <laughs> That's right. Oh, I wish everyone could see that. Tim, you should make a video of yourself doing a shoulder shake and post it to the Facebook page. Just, just cause. Just While reading. You know, a shoulder shake while reading. Yeah, exactly. That's going to be too much for the ladies. Yeah, I don't don't know for anybody, (laughs) let's be honest. Okay, well, let's get out of here. (laughs) For Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free warbyparker.com slash covered.